Greetings and welcome to Resistance Recovery. Resistance Recovery is dedicated to the exploration of any and all topics related to recovery, spirituality, and culture. Join us as we interview thought leaders working at the edges of cultural transformation. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. excited this week to have my friend Barbara Booth join us. Uh, we're going to talk about Anthroposophy, the Alcyon Center, the cultural moment, and for sake of um, disclosure, Barbara is the big sister of my dear, very dear friend Catherine Booth, who a lot of you know from the Alcyon Center. So, before we begin, um, maybe just a little thumbnail about who you are and in the short version. The short version. <laughs> so let's see. After the Peace Corps, uh, when I was in my early 20s, I, um, that's when I first found uh, out about um, Rudolf Steiner and anthroposophy and that's led me towards uh, spending seven years in a Camp Hill village which is uh, they are all over the world now Camp Hill villages and they are intentional communities with um, people with life challenges and uh, people without life challenges or with other kinds of life challenges and uh, usually in an agricultural setting with with crafts and workshops. And that was a very formative uh, seven years of my 30s, 20s and 30s, and um, also was a kind of a balm, kind of a medicine after being in the uh, Peace Corps where I had such conflicting views about using chemicals and with farmers in rural Africa so that their crops could grow, supposedly. So those themes of uh, working in sustainable agriculture, and then <clears throat> I also taught high school in the Peace Corps. The teaching theme continues throughout my life. I've worked in Waldorf schools, which are founded, uh, inspired by Rudolf Steiner also, independent school movement all over the world. And, um, then have worked in some other, uh, what would you say, peripheral settings like the uh, Lakota Reservation in South Dakota, Pine Ridge, working with teachers there and working in the Dominican Republic with farmers, upland uh, agriculture, deepland agriculture, creating terraces instead of the slash and burn method and um, yeah, I got a college degree and I then got a master's degree in environmental science and education. And, uh, and yet really peers, I would say that all of those things were, um, maybe they were the 
skeleton that, you know, held me up through the world. But uh, I've been on a constant search for um, meaning, meaningfulness, coherence, and that's grown over the years uh, to include these last seven years of living very simply on an island in Maine, uh, mm -hmm. raising goats and vegetables and studying the book of nature. Well, it sounds like you, like many people who get involved with anthroposophy, there was some sort of inner questioning that if not fully answered by Rudolf Steiner and his work, you got indications of where to go and, and how to move into the future. Is that fair? Yeah, that is fair. Um, even after college, I was starting to read um, esoteric writers, new age writers. Um, um, my dad was a Protestant minister, so we were raised in, in, in the church, but other than um, running around uh, during the week in the pews and singing in the choir, I didn't, I didn't find the answers there. And so, um, yeah, Rudolf Steiner was helping build a framework into which so many things could fit. Um, meaningfulness about all religions in the world, meaningfulness about a, an arc of the evolution of human consciousness, meaningfulness about solutions, you know, now that we're in this time of um, having, well, I guess I would say Western civilization and shareholder capitalism, you know, collapsing, um, you know, what are the, what are the positive uh, future-bearing paths ahead? And um, that's one thing I think people love dearly about Steiner is that he gave so many indications, I think is the translation of the word. Uh, you know, he didn't tell people what to do and he only gave indications when people asked, right. uh, which is the sign of a great initiate. So, so for, for the audience, maybe, who is this man? Well, uh, Rudolf Steiner was born in Central Europe, 1861, uh, to a free-thinking father and mother, and uh, at an early age, he was already experiencing um, the presence of the spiritual world and a kind of reality that most of us will never know. And uh, flash forward and he's um, educated himself in many different um, areas of the sciences, religion, philosophy, and um, began speaking people asked him to speak and he began speaking he connected himself to the only uh, group that he could find um, sort of like a, a vessel for his 
what was coming towards him and what lived in him and what he perceived, which was the Theosophical Society. Um, although that, that wasn't, that wasn't um, long lived because he had other places he was going with what, what he was bringing to the world. So really he was a, 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 an initiate, a Renaissance man, a tremendously gifted human being um, who was able to bring topics to uh, West, the Western world that tied together um, all the different spiritual streams and brought topics like karma and reincarnation into um, conversations and opened up the avenue for people to who who uh, hadn't been thinking that way to start thinking about those concepts. Yeah, I mean, I think what a lot of people, you know, because of my interest, I'm often in these communities and the name Steiner comes up and very often there are all these misconceptions and, and chiefly among them, I think, is that he is um, purely an occultist of the theosophical variety. So, so many people don't realize, no, he, he basically went to the equivalent of, the M of MIT in Vienna, deliberately studying science, reading Immanuel Kant at a young age, and you know, even though he had this, this, these clairvoyant gifts, for lack of a better term, he felt that he needed to be very much grounded in the contemporary world. And that made, it, that made a man who was very um, capable of speaking to many different people. And this is, that's the thing about Steiner that maybe I would most want to emulate in my own life, huh. is to be able to enter sympathetically into worldviews that are really different than my own. Yes. Um, with, the, with the sense that even if this thing is almost abhorrent to me, it's, um, there's, there has to be some element of truth or this person wouldn't have this existential commitment in this place. Um, so that, that's really, I think, one of the measures of his stature, but also one of the places he's just really misunderstood. Yes. So you learn about Steiner and was it, if you go into, maybe we should talk a little bit more about Camp Hill and that can give us um, a greater sense of what he understands the human being to be. I'm assuming that your life in Camp Hill introduced you to a new model of the human as well as probably some ideas around biodynamic agriculture and a few other things. Uh -huh. Right. Yeah, I, uh, I was in my, I was, so I was 27 when I went there, uh, still full of all kinds of questions, willing to question authority, willing to question the elders of the community. And, um, and, and it was just what you said also, 
it was a, an incredibly rich. I participated in a biodynamic training group. Those of us who were there, it was a one-year program, and we were uh, so involved that we asked the teachers if they would make another year, a second year, and, and then we asked them if they'd make a third year. Uh, and the group of us who were there at the time have gone on to start uh, seed companies and biodynamic farms and many uh, became Waldorf teachers eventually, all kinds of, it was a, it was a great time to be in the village. Um, and to answer your, your question, uh, um, also, I think it's, it's important to thinking ideas of Rudolf Steiner has to do with a, a, um, a forming or an understanding of how society could work together with different realms <clears throat> that would uh, preserve our freedom to make choices in some area. Um, and um, it's called the threefold social order. And we can talk a little bit about that. Um, but I just wanna say that Camp Hills, Camp Hill Villages, uh, uh, organize themselves according to that way of, of living. Um, so the threefold social order has three realms that are independent of each other and yet in, interdependent also. And uh, they are the, the cultural realm, the cultural spiritual realm, the economic realm, and the human rights political realm. And so Steiner has a way of understanding those three realms um, and their, their different qualities um, that really inspired me early on and still inspires me today. Even though we're, you know, centuries <laughs> from it, I do feel that we're headed in that direction if we want to preserve human freedom and if we understand that we are all evolving towards uh, a kind of... Uh, loving our neighbors as ourselves, to put it mildly. Right. And so the cultural realm is a sphere of freedom and organicity, if you will, things emerging up from the community and the people. Right. So the, exactly. So people, we all, the idea is that we all have the right, the freedom to choose our own everything in the cultural sphere, our own education, our own um, uh, artistic inclination, our own uh, philosophy, our own spirituality. We have the freedom in that, in that cultural spiritual realm. And so, all right, here's your frozen. Oh, yeah, there you are. Yeah, we're both freezing up. Um, uh, oh. Hmm. Um, let's just keep going for now. Okay. Um, so we could talk about the economic realm where uh, the, the sort of guiding principle is... Um, collaboration, sometimes people say brotherhood, 
uh, and uh, that in that realm, we all have the right, the right to work, meaningful work that works for us, but it's, it's different. Each one of us has a different capacity and we, we aren't all equal in that, right? We aren't all shoemakers or, you know, um, factory workers. Um, but we have the right to, and we want to treat each other as brother and sister in a kind of a, uh, loving acceptance of our differences there. And then the third realm, you want me to go on? Well, I just have questions about the economic realm. Yeah. So would this mean we're having a greater collaboration between producers and consumers? Yes. And would it mean that Yeah. It, a huge, a huge reorientation around the notion of competition? Yes. In fact, I read recently, because um, I've always wondered, you know, uh, how to talk about capitalism evolving towards the threefold picture. And um, Steiner does talk about how capitalism, if it were collaborative, like you were saying, if it were associative, if people were working together, not in the, in the extreme competitive way that it's evolved right now, um, that it would bring out the best in um, humanity. Yeah, because, you know, sometimes I've read things about uh, post-war Japan, and also to a lesser degree, post-war Germany. And they say that, you know, in post-war Japan, even though it's this, you know, emerging economic leviathan, the, the average Japanese person was, was really aware of, you know, the importance of buying things locally, or at least things that are Japanese, and that paying a little bit more, if it's for the common good, why, why not? And so there was, um, maybe that structurally it wasn't what Steiner's talking about, but you could sort of feel an ethos there, perhaps? Um, yes. I think the economic sphere for me, given that I've been, you know, I'm American, I've been groomed in this system, that's the one that's a little harder for me to get my head around, or seems more vague, really. Yeah. it's a far distant star that we're all aiming for. And, and there's, looks like we're frozen again. Um, I, I like to think of the little examples that are, are already sprouting up. And that helps me, you know, like the CSA movement, community supported agriculture, or the CSM movement, community supported medicine, mm -hmm. or the, um, uh, the, some of the for, new forms that have arisen, like B Corp, B Corp, uh, it's a it's a way that uh, it's like a like how organic standards exist so that people can meet them and then consumers can see that what the products are. So a B Corp agrees to um, follow certain practices that are environmentally friendly, are are uh, paying everyone along the chain uh, fair wages, uh, many many other things. 
And there are like 3,000 organizations around the world now that are certified as B Corps. Wow. And so they're, they're offering their own certification. They're not deferring to some government right. or corporate. Correct. The I mean, they, they, they have to do that in other senses, of course. Uh, Patagonia is an example of a, uh, someone that's uh, been registered that way. Eileen Fisher, apparently. Clothing really? wallet. Yeah. Uh, but there, there are many of them. So those are some examples. And then finally, the political sphere. Right, that we all are equal in, our, in, 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 in some kind of foundational human rights. Uh, we all have an equal right to vote. We all have an equal right to um, uh, be treated fairly by the laws that are in place. And that's where there would be laws that would be protecting us in ways that we see right now are abysmal, ab short. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so is it fair to say that corporate personhood may be the thing that's most uh, yeah. blocking the vision of the political sphere? Yes. Yeah. So you Steiner really had a vision where the votes were equal, whether you're wealthy or yes. ordinary worker. Yeah. yeah. We've really gone so far down the wrong path. And so pathology in a society can be diagnosed in terms of what sphere is encroaching upon moving out of its proper domain, meaning, so in America, I think it's safe to say that the economic sphere has come to dominate both the political and the cultural. Yes, that's, that's right. Yeah. We are the classic example, the supreme example of that. Yeah. So that we can learn. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, we just, we do learn best through mistakes, human beings. Mm -hmm. Right. So we're right. So that's a big deal with Steiner too. That what appears to be, well, what he even calls evil is actually there for our own development. So, in a sense, we are, we are to embrace the resistance or work with the resistance, struggle against the resistance in order to develop. And and. Uh... You know, I feel that that really a new understanding of what resistance is, what challenges are, what what all of those situations are for us, um, and then that we can we can extrapolate that for right now in in our time in this cultural moment um, that we were born for this. We were born to participate in the resistance because that's that's just the way of all of nature uh, and and humanity's evolution has come through this kind of resistance and uh, in order to find our way to the next um, horizon where we see the next view so 
meaning that humanity is evolving and developing capacities through these encounters. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. Well, there's, of course, many different ways. And, and, you know, in a certain sense, at the same time as we're evolving in a more co cooperative, loving direction, some of us are also uh, developing in the other direction. Yeah. That's but what right. I love, what, what I love about Rudolf Steiner and his worldview, uh, but not only Steiner, he, you know, he, uh, refers to other great initiates is that no one gets left behind in the end. And that, uh, you know, my salvation depends on your salvation. Uh, we will, we will go to, we will all go together in the right direction at varying times because that's, that's how it works. We're all at different stages. But I love that picture. And, and, and together with that, the, I know, um, you and I share, a a love of money. And that kind of a picture uh, um, of the redemption of evil, uh, which seems so crucial. I mean, it's so clear that we're living in this time where we're just diving in. We are we are experiencing evil in all its possible forms, uh, and it is part of our upbringing to try to avoid it or turn our backs on it. And yet somewhere it's this, you know, the mystery of how to love evil into good. Yeah. Such an incredible challenge. Yeah. <clears throat> a lot of the stuff that I've been looking at, you know, um, outside of anthroposophy, that really is looking at evil from perhaps a more psychological or cultural lens. Uh, so this, this thinker, Jason Horsley, you know, so he would say that, uh, he and other thinkers would say that when you're traumatized, when you're wounded, um, one strategy of dealing with this woundedness is to make everything small around you. So I'm a wounded individual and then I, in order to compensate for that or to not to feel my vulnerability or my uh, unassimilable affect, you might say, I make things around me smaller. Now you can do that in really violent ways by dominating, by minimizing the needs and, and, and feelings of others. But you can also do it in more subtle ways like always being in a helper role. Hmm. This is a way of, you know, because I, if I'm, if I'm the, the helper, I don't have to feel my own diminishment because I'm, there's an asymmetry. I'm the one with the power. Um, another thing that Horsley in particular points out is that if you've been wounded in certain ways, culturally, especially, you will identify with the, uh, the vengeful hero. 
you know, the Clint Eastwood character, the guy who comes in and takes out all the bad guys, you know, so vengeance, vengeance fantasies. And all of that seems to be so relevant to, uh -huh. you know, rather than do that, how do we approach this thing with kindness and, and, and uh, sympathetic understanding? Tall order, you know, super tall order, because the vengeance fantasy, you know, lives strongly in me. I mean, I can extend that kind of sympathy towards this, this, and this, but then there's this domain of people that, you know, they deserve what they get. Um, so I think that's a great, great challenge. Uh -huh. um, and yet, on, on, the, on, the, on the level of doing it, you know, I can say for, for certain that going into the prison you will often come to feel strong affection for somebody and then discover what their crimes were. And that kind of seems to illustrate what Steiner's talking about. Uh -huh. It becomes impossible at that point to condemn the person in that absolute sense after having made that, touched them uh -huh. and touched by them. Uh -huh. So, at the Camp Hill community, you were, they're able, so-called normal people, um, working with, side by side, living with people that we would call disabled. Uh -huh. um, usually, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, people on the spectrum or downs? Is yes. That, yeah. Uh, really the whole, uh, everything. So it could be Down syndrome, could be autism. Asperger's, uh, um, uh, brain damage from a, tra a, a traumatic birth. Um, Cerebral palsy. Yes. People so all these folks are living together. Mm -hmm. in, in, in homes. So um, for, for example, in Kimberton Hills, there are 15 different homes, houses, um, and so there would be anything from two to seven so-called uh, life-challenged adults together with a family and some young, younger coworkers who were there to take a training program or uh, just experience uh, life in Camp Hill. Right, so then there are neighborhoods within uh, the whole community three or four neighborhoods and the neighborhoods work together uh, in, in uh, the organizational structure in those three realms. And, and the vision of the therapeutic nature of it is that it's not only therapeutic for the challenged people, it's therapeutic for the caregivers. Oh yeah. It's therapeutic for the land. Yes. And ideally, it's therapeutic for the adjacent community. Correct. Is that, is that yeah? Yeah, and, and the and the adjacent community uh, is everything from, as you were saying, the land. So the, it, it, there's a kind of a radiating out that happens, whether it's the biodynamic agriculture radiating out uh, the the wild birds who come there because it's been created as a farm or whether it's the 
influence of the um, cultural life on on the towns around. Yeah, it's it's um, for a village like Kimberton Hills. It's been there since 1970 something. Uh, it's quite profound. Yeah, I would. Um... To the audience, if you could ever visit one of these places, and if you yes. can't, uh, there's a series of videos in a film called The Challenge of Rudolf Steiner, where mm. the thing is dedicated to uh, visiting several uh, Campbell communities. Watch this. Um, I've had the privilege of spending some time with our friend Hannah Schwartz, who soon to leave. Uh, Heartbeat, life sharing, yeah. up in Hardwood, Vermont. It's kind of like going there is kind of like the first time I visited a Waldorf kindergarten. And there was something inside of me that um, <laughs> actually felt like I was, I started grieving my own life. Yeah. Um, because these 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 so-called challenged people in that environment they're not they're not diminished they're they're fully full-fledged members of the community and they are embraced and they are contributing members of the community and they are not heavily medicated and they are not uh, condescended to and it's it's very hard to um short of standing in one of those places, it's very hard to articulate the power. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it, um, it, it's, the, the long-term community members are, have been studying anthroposophy their whole adult lives and um, many sort of uh, outstanding and um, inspiring people from all over the world who have written books. I'm thinking of um, Nicanor Perlis in the Philippines, uh, Peter Selg, and various people. When they come to the United States, they will go to these villages to speak, and they're speaking to handicapped people, and they're speaking to so-called not handicapped people in these beautiful halls that have been designed according to the architecture that Rudolf Steiner um, uh, suggested to architects who asked him. And so, though it, it was just so potent to be there surrounded by the audience of people I lived with, each in our own way listening to these incredible uh, presentations, sometimes musical presentations, mm -hmm. um, sometimes plays, but often these very deep, powerful uh, philosophical contributions. Yeah, so maybe as a way of um, getting a little more esoteric, but it'll let us segue into biodynamics and Waldorf. The role of art and what it, how Steiner understands what art does for the soul, not just of the, the young child, but of, of all of us. So give, could you give us a picture of the kind of art uh, art art 
and some crafts people are engaged in in yeah. the Camp Hill community and, and what the what the ideas that that's doing for them. Yeah. If is since you opened the door to uh, sort of a deeper conversation, I just want to add one thing, which is that because Rudolf Steiner uh, understands, because I understand, because you understand that uh, we have lived repeated Earth lives, there is a sense of that. Um, in terms of the so-called handicapped people, that they, are, they have chosen this type of an incarnation for a reason. And, um, you know, a reason that's mysterious, uh, but it, 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 it raises up the interactions. You were describing how beautiful they are. And, and that's part of it is that, you know, we're each on this spiritual journey. It does not matter how our physical body formed itself in this life uh, or our mind even um, because our human spirit is is pure and is beyond beyond that and has its own um, mission in this lifetime you could say so in terms of the art i mean i i, I love the idea of uh beginning with architecture because it's so um palpable to say you know, imagine yourself sitting in a, um, well, the, the extreme would be a prison cell. Mm. You know, what does that feel like in your soul? Mm. And then imagine yourself in a 20 foot tall teepee. Or imagine yourself in a yurt. And now, now imagine yourself back into your high school classroom, the one that didn't have any windows. And, and you start to say, you, you start to feel, oh yeah, and so um, the point he was making is that we're, we're our thinking and our, our, our thinking heart uh, is, is uh, influenced by what surrounds us in terms of the design of a building. And um, so, yeah, to be in a building that's designed not, uh, how would you say that? That's pushing the edges away from all right angles. Mm -hmm. He had a lot to say about the right angle coming out of a certain period of human evolution and that in order for our thinking to develop further, we need to put ourselves in settings where it's, it's, it's more than the right angle that we experience around us. And I'm being very um, kind of crude about that reading some of his literature about architecture is helpful. Um, so things, there's rounded corners, rounded window frames. Um, and different angles around the window, not just, uh, you know, the, um, yeah. right. And, and, and not regular sometimes, yeah, sometimes not irregular. Yeah. And then there's and, a lot of color schemes that yes. are not uniform, but they actually 
lighten and shadow and meet the light in very different ways throughout the seasons and days. Right, and the, uh, the, 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 there's, a, there's a color light therapy that's um, been developed in Camp Hill Villages um, and is also reflected in just what you were saying, some of these windows that are basically like uh, uh, resurrected uh, stained glass windows. They are, they are uh, glass that's been formed with certain metals that creates a certain kind of color. Um, and then they're etched so that the thickness of the glass is, is less in some places and wider in other places. So the color, uh, you can imagine, um, fades and deepens, but it's all one color originally. Mm -hmm. And those um, are considered a kind of therapy when you're in, in their presence, the presence of color like that. And of course, Steiner talks about color um, <clears throat> in all of, uh, in, you know, shows itself in all kinds of art forms. Um, and the and therapeutic nature of it is that it, 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 it affects the soul in the, in the domain of feeling, yes? And of course, if your feeling is harmonized with the environment, it will also change your thinking yeah is that, is that yeah correct? yeah it's you know this um uh oh gosh i feel like i'm gonna take too much of a leap forward to talk about yesha yahu ben aharon well, we can get there but let's get there okay <laughs> okay it, it, he, he's doing a wonderful job about bringing color as an as a being and that's where I think it's important to get somewhere, you know, in the early conversations about spiritual science is that everything has a being nature, mm -hmm. including all color. And, and, and there's a science to the beingness of red and there's a mm -hmm. science uh, to the beingness of green. And exactly what you said, Piers, that they have different effects on our soul although Steiner talks about our soul, you know, having thinking, feeling, and willing qualities. And so all of those are affected when we gaze at a manganese um, oxide or whatever, how you, however you describe the color that comes <clears throat> or the metal that influences this incredible color that you're gazing at. And then what about the actual production or the cre making creativity of art in, in these communities, the, the felting and the... Yeah. What is, what is that, what, what, are we, what are we doing there? Well, it's, it's uh, very similar to what the, the philosophy behind the Waldorf schools that are doing that same uh, honoring of the practical arts and... Um, meaning that and, and modern brain re research has has shown this that when we do meaningful activities with our hands and i'm not talking about thumbs on a on a um <laughs> iphone but when we do meaningful activities with our hands with substances that came from the earth that we're transforming into their next stage we are 
developing uh, the cerebral cortex of our brain. And uh, I mean, that's just a very practical level um, explanation of it. Um, but you can imagine what it means to train your hands in spinning wool from raw, um, you know, fibers, right. or, or to have raised the sheep there at the farm and then participated <clears throat> when the shearer came and, you know, taking it all the way through until you have a felted pair of slippers. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the same thing with woodworking, where the wood is cut, you know, by the woodworking crew, and then it's cut on the new moon so that it's dry and ready for the next stage. And then you take it to the shop where it's, you know, fill in the blank, turned into a basket or a yeah. wood carving. And that, the, that everyone is participating. Everyone is participating to the extent they can. And um, it's really remarkable. Some people have spent their, their adult lives in these communities becoming incredibly good at weaving or carving or, uh, you know, milking a cow or, you know, making cheese. Or... Making cheese. Yeah. And it gives, uh, and this is where I, I just uh, am so nourished by the idea that, that work is uh, a gift we get here on earth. Doing work is a, a joy, a meaningful thing. Now it's been so betrayed and, and um, degraded. Yeah. In many ways, but um, and this but is this is extending dignity. Yes, not just to work, but to everyone, because everyone can participate in making things that are not only useful and valuable, but also beautiful or nutritious. Right. So get a little more esoteric and the food that's being produced in this form of agriculture that's employed to do it and how that is working with what Steiner calls the etheric. So the, the life force of the food, the life force of the person cultivating the food the life force of the animals. So what, you know, when I'm trying to explain the etheric to my clients, I can make these sort of pretty fair comparisons to things like prana or ki. But Steiner's taking it in a, in a more Western direction. So how, how does biodynamic agriculture enhance the etheric the life force, the nutritional value of the food. Well, that, that's good. You said nutritional value because, um, you know, there are these different sort of symptoms of, of, of the etheric of life force and nutritional value is one and quality is another and keeping quality is one and um, fragrance and scent um, so there are a lot of, of indications 
in food food products of of life force. And uh, okay, so now remind me your question again. Well, how do we how do we enhance this? How do we how do we work to make food uh, grow food that is yeah full of life force? So uh, first, we have to start with an understanding that all the time, every every moment here on Earth, streaming towards the Earth from out um, in the universe, coming through the planets and the moon are these formative forces. And that's always happening. And there is a, a science to it. And one can study this and people have studied it their whole lives and written books on it. And we understand a little bit of it through astrology. Uh, those, those forces uh, can be worked with and enhanced uh, by planting at certain times and harvesting at certain times. Um, so let's see, what else do I want to say about that? The vision of a farm uh, that uh, Rudolf Steiner suggested to the farmers who asked him for advice was a, he called it a farm organism. And he described uh, how um, no matter what size farm you have, and you can even do this with a good sized backyard almost, that uh, there are these different areas that you are kind of creating. You're creating a, a, a miniature little earth on your farm. There's a wild area, there's a water area, there's a um, cultivating area. There's the home, there's the animals, there's as many animals as you can. There's central to all of this is the soil and that farmers are really, you know, this radical revolutionary cultivators of soil. Um, you know, any civilization will go under and does go under because of how it treats the soil. And so to build new soil is the foundation of any new culture. <laughs> and soil building happens through um, uh, compost making first and foremost, and there's a whole science to making compost. It happens, and well, let me just add to that, that the compost is composed of, yes, you could say nitrogen and carbon and other ingredients also, but also animal, uh, manure and plant matter and uh, and there's um, there's a science to that there's a science to the the spiritual nature of domesticated animals and what role they play in humanity's development not only because we become better human beings when we care for animals but also because we um, we help them evolve. And this comes to this whole amazing nature, you know, uh, uh, purpose of what, what, what does it mean to be a human being? Why are we here on earth? What are we doing? 
um, and Steiner just blows that into all these different other levels of, well, we're, we're building soil. We're, um, we're helping all animal species evolve. And by doing that, we're evolving. We're caring for other human beings who are, you know, less able. And that's how we're evolving the planet and humanity. You know, there's so many layers that he brings up and I'm getting lit away from biodynamics a little bit, <laughs> but. All right, hard not to. So, yeah. so a couple of things, that, a couple of big things. One I'd like to talk about is <clears throat> the, the etheric force or power in, in a vegetable has almost nothing to do with its size. So, you know, in America, we're always making everything bigger. And the other thing is that biodynamics are an area of anthroposophy that spread far beyond the world of dues-paying, card-carrying anthroposophists. And in fact, biodynamic agriculture was seminal to the organic agricultural movement generally. I don't think a lot of people realize that. Yeah. So the first one, the etheric power of a vegetable is coming from cosmic forces, soil forces, um, and that does not mean that it's going to be a huge potato or a huge tomato. That, those, that, 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 that force has little to do with the actual size of the plant. Is that right? Yes. Um, in a way, we have to go back one step because we live in such a degraded world right now that if you go down to the hardware store and you buy seed, vegetable seeds and you grow them out, even if you grow them out using biodynamic compost, you're already one step behind because the seed quality itself has been bred to be large, to be um, pretty, to be quick, to be... Um, to and, thousands of miles in an airplane. Exactly. Fit in a crate. Um, and, and all of those things, you can't just have everything. So when you, when you breed towards those things, you sacrifice nutrition, you sacrifice flavor, you sacrifice those, those areas that we mentioned earlier are, are where the etheric force, where the life force, where the quality is. So start back further and, and we're gonna buy our seeds from turtle tree seeds or meadow, meadow lark hearth. You know, we're gonna buy our seeds that have already been many generations grown by biodynamic farmers who are raising vegetables for, for seed uh, production. So, so if we start with that, then, and we grow them out following a planting calendar that through, you know, centuries and centuries, farmers have known in the past about when you plant according to the moon and the, the planetary movement and when you don't. Um, so we're going to be planting according to that. And therefore, we're going to be enhancing those formative forces that are always streaming in. We're going to be aligning ourselves with them more. And it's going to start showing up in the quality of the, of the vegetables. And one of the, ways it, one of the ways it shows up is that they, if you put a biodynamic carrot in your bag of carrots in your refrigerator, 
and you put a bag of conventionally grown carrots from California in your refrigerator and you wait six months, you'll be able to see for yourself the um, life force and the vitality in, in, in its difference in those two, meaning that the California um, conventionally grown ones will not, will not last anywhere near as long as the biodynamic ones. Um, so here's a little more esoteric question. So you say that all of this, this, this timing and this rhythm and these cosmic forces streaming in are reflected in the, in the vegetable are they also reflected in the consciousness of the farmer? Right, exactly. So, you know, there are these um, really fascinating, uh, they're called preparations that are used by biodynamic farmers, uh, like a kind of homeopathy for the soil. They're, they're, um, and uh, Steiner talks about how the spraying of the preparations some good portion of of that of the nature of 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 him suggesting to use these preparations is what it will do in terms of the farmer's inner life in terms of their own increased vitality in terms of how they affect the elemental world around around them how they affect the animals around them because they are spending time thinking about formative forces. They're thinking about these preparations. They're walking, you know, every day on the soil and, and noticing the little changes. And um, they're interacting with beings. They're interacting with beings. They're creating beings. You know, when they spray these um, amazing preparations, on the land, you can just feel, you know, each little droplet is now, you know, you can start saying to yourself, oh, I get it, I get it. You know, in every little droplet, it's beingness, it's beingness, it's, it's, it's morphing, it's, you know, I stirred it, now it's full of vitality because of all the vortexes I created when I stirred it back and forth, and now I'm spraying it on the land and it's going down. And so, yeah, I am changing, I am changed because I did that. The people who come to my farm and buy my produce on some level perceive that in me and that causes a kind of interest in them and um, and certainly by eating the food they also slowly develop you know a connection to the land and, a, and an interest and and you know just picture appears the you know, 10 years of eating um, the kind of crappy industrialized overprocessed food compared to 10 years and how that and what that does for our body and mind and soul compared to 10 years of eating from a biodynamic farm. Mm -hmm. And imagining the respective places where they were both grown and the right. people that work there. And, and so just real quick, so, the organic movement generally got some impetus from the biodynamic movement historically. Yes, but I, I don't hold that picture very well in my head. But you're right. Okay. I mean, I'm just, yeah. The, the early founders of the uh, Sir Albert Howard and others um, 
including uh, Rodale here in the United States, were influenced by people like Aaron Fried Pfeiffer, who was um, um, a young student that uh, Rudolf Steiner took under his wing and, and helped um, him choose the kind of subjects he taught and then sent, sent Aaron Fried Pfeiffer to the United States. And, and that was the beginning of biodynamics in the United States. 1920s, 30s? Ooh, I don't know. 30s, 30s okay. or 40s. So I feel like there's some part of you that's chomping at the bit. <laughs> so if we want to, if you want to talk about um, some of the things going on around the world today that are particularly exciting that you've been exposed to, um, Yeshua Ben Aaron uh, and company, let's go. Oh. <laughs> Um, gosh. Well, you know, we all develop in our own little paths, um, and as especially in our, this deck, this, uh, nine times seven is 63. So ninth and 10th years, uh, seventh years, seven year cycles. We're at the point where we are, um, so aware that every moment matters and there, there are fewer of them left than we've already done in this life. Um, so I have been inspired by um, a number of anthroposophists and a number of people who are not connected to anthroposophy, but are bringing together uh, a new picture of how to understand uh, the natural world and how to make connections to it and relate relate to it and um yeah but i do feel like it is a bit of a leap you know ari thorison for example who's written this sure. amazing book on christology and demonology mm -hmm. who articulates so clear clearly uh and 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 kind of gives a, a science to, you know, what is a demon when we, when we are feeling like there are voices in us that are destructive ones, you know, wh where is that coming from? And how can I uh, have a relationship with that such that, that I am in control? And uh, uh, one of Ari's points about the kind of demons within us and around us is that uh, the solution is not to banish them, but to, uh, which he calls translocating. And he used to do that in his work as a veterinarian. He used to move demons off of, let's say, um, cattle at a dairy farm that he would work with uh, until he discovered that they just go somewhere else. And so that the real solution is um, transforming them. And, and that comes all back to loving them. And how do you do that? How do you love, you know, the, the evil voice inside or the, um, yeah. So I find yeah, I'm very I'm very taken with his work as well. Um, well, maybe that'll be helpful for the audience because I can just tell that we probably piqued their curiosity. Um, 
So maybe we should talk about the two main kinds of demonic forces that we encounter, the Luciferic and the Arimonic, and how that they do inhabit us, but they are actually opposites. And they also are um, related to illness. They can, they can work together, they can work separate. Um, so. That's great. That's a good description. Um, yeah, that book really is, it's like a, a textbook. Mm -hmm. I think w how you just summarized it is great. Um, his, his, uh, his point is that the, the um, Aramonic beings are the ones that uh, sort of bind us to the earth, that uh, bind us to, you know, a materialistic way of thinking devoid of a spiritual aspect. And then that the Luciferic beings are the ones that um, cause us to fly away in fantasies of um, fan self-sufficient perfection. <laughs> Say that again. Self-sufficient perfection. That's great. Yeah, and uh, so he is—he has come so far as to um, describe how we can heal ourselves, heal others, and even work with um, technology by widening the space between the two, which he calls the Christ space, the middle sphere. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and it's a way of not banishing the Luciferic or the Aramonic, by put, but by putting them in their place, by saying you, yes, you, you each have your role, but um, you must create, you must widen the space between, you must allow for the Christ presence. And, and, you know, and thereby um, transforming them. Right. Which is another way of saying redeeming them. Yes. So the thing about Taurus and it's so interesting is that he says that the, well, Steiner would say this too, that the Luciferic forces give us the sense of um, egoic identity, sense of individuality, and the Arimonic forces give us this material body, this embodiment that allows us to be agents on this sphere. And the, the way they're opposite is the, the Luciferic tends to be disembodied. So that's why it's in a sense opposite to the Arimonic, it goes away. And so I think uh, in the world of recovery, there's a lot of drugs that do this. You know, I would think marijuana, um, certain hallucinogens. And then on the other hand, there's this, when the Arimonic prevails, you know, it's, um, it's very related to technology. It's calculated, it's cold, it inspires our genius around technology. Um, but it, 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 there are drugs, I do believe that really are Arimonic drugs, I would say speed or alcohol. Yeah, I was going to put alcohol there. 
yeah, they throw us into the body, which creates a kind of coarse sensuality and hyperactivity. And that the Christ is this force that can balance and harmonize this. Yes? Is that, is that the picture? Yeah. So yeah. This, this is a so anthroposophy is a Christocentric movement that's not exclusivist. So that's so remarkable. It is remarkable, and I, I love the the image of the Christ being as the higher self of humanity. Um, that's Ben Aharon saying that, and. Uh, especially when he writes about the the Bible and uh, the mission of the Hebrew people, um, uh, he's holding that picture of this incarnation process of the higher self of humanity. You know that we we have been evolving towards the point when when um, when Jesus Christ incarnated and then the three years of um, from baptism to crucifixion, resurrection, that that, that was this um, moment, this, this, this real turning point for humanity. And the other part of um, that lives strongly in esoteric uh, Christianity and in in biodynamics is this um, beautiful image that at crucifixion, Christ's blood flowing into the earth, you know, was it was a was an event for the whole earth. Yeah, earth as a being, yeah. um, and I think that um, anyone who works the land for years starts to feel what that means. I read something interesting recently that um, one of the scientists who, who followed up on things that Steiner said um, was talking about ever since um, Christ's life on earth, a new rhythm was established and that was the 33 year rhythm. Mm. And um, that wasn't there before. I, th I found that just amazing to think about. And yet this is, as rich as this is for people, well, as rich as it is, it's a stumbling block for a lot of people in relation to anthroposophy. And I don't, I've struggled to get past this in some of my relationships. The, the one thing I can say is he's not saying, he's saying that this, this higher self is as much for a Buddhist or a Muslim oh. or atheist as it is for anyone else. And there's no requirement that you abandon your allegiances to anything. Yes. And, and the, what he's really saying is it's objective. It's, it's yeah. a fact. Um, that helps, but <laughs> I know. Still, yeah. 
Yeah, and, and that's why my, you know, good fortune to travel to other places in the world to see, for example, a, well, I, I haven't seen this myself, but I did meet the founder of this community in Egypt, Sekem, which is a Muslim community that is based on anthroposophical ideas about wow. biodynamics, about Waldorf education. So the students there are praying the Muslim prayers and um, the same thing in, you know, the Waldorf schools in India that mm -hmm. are, that are, um, are Hindu and, you know, around the world, um, mm -hmm. these stories are there. I think that's why, you know, it's so fascinating to see in China right now, that's where Waldorf education is growing the fastest right now. Is um, it really? Yeah. And um, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and um, you know, when I worked in Santa Fe uh, with some of the um, Pueblo leaders, and once they understood, and this is true in, you know, the Lakota also, when they understand this idea that this, this is an education system for anyone on any spiritual path that holds that there's a spiritual nature to all of existence, Right. Um, you just, and, and then we will honor your tradition because of the truth of your tradition. Yes. Truth is truth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's uh, fantastic. So I don't know if you read Ari's, I don't know which book it is. He has another one that came out that I've read part of. And when he was talking about Ariman and Lucifer, he was saying, you know, so there's, there's illnesses that are Luciferic and illnesses that are Arimanic. Um, uh, luciferic illnesses tend to be inflammatory, hot, arimonic. I think I'm getting this right. Tend to be cold. Yes. And arthritic and sclerotic hardening. And that's anthroposophical medicine, also. Right. Same. And what he says is, in the body, you will have, you know, your shoulder will be inflamed and your arthritic hip. And he actually says that as these things get closer together. In, in the physical body, when they actually start meeting, that is usually can result in cancer. So cancer in some senses, these two forces coming too close. There's no, there's no middle, there's no middle sphere. Right. Um, and he's, he's saying something that, you know, it seems remarkable to me that um, Steiner gives us this indication in the fifth gospel that you can do certain spiritual practices that bring the soul to a state of real purity, but there's a danger that you'll just drive these demonic forces onto others that are outside of the, the magic circle. And it's just so wild that it took all these years for Torsen to say, and that very same principle is happening in our healing that I can, I can drive these arimonic forces out of a patient, but they will go into another patient. Um, and I, did anybody really work along those lines before this? Or is this before really, this? Yeah, before RA, around healing. Or is this a real moment? I think it's a moment. I think he's really bringing something. Um, 
his his journey has been long and he's fortunately documented it for us and so willing to share it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, as we wind down, maybe just a little perspective on... Anytime he has a from him. I'm sorry, we, we had a little thing there. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was going to say, say as we're, as yes. we're, as you're, we're, you're I'm sorry. Um, as we start to wind down, I was w- wanting to get your impression of your, your time at the Alcyon Center and what it's like to work with um, groups that are more or less dominated by people in early recovery. And how is that? What are you seeing? Um, Great question. I think uh, the, the best teaching experience that I ha- have had there was this last group um, because it was almost completely people in recovery. And, um, you know, I feel a little, a, a little like a novice saying this, saying this to you, saying this on resistance recovery. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the cultural moment is that we're heading down to the bottom. We're not there yet, but we're heading down to the bottom in that kind of a hologram picture that, you know, someone who has hit bottom and is, is, you know, clawing their way out and has made it a year or half a year out, you know, we're not there yet as a civilization, but um, so that's my way of saying that people who are in recovery are, are leading the way in a certain sense because all of those qualities that are required for us to get out of our addiction to um, uh, shareholder capitalism, to consumerism, to materialism without the spirit, that kind of illness, all of that is um, uh, someone who has already done it with a physical substance um, is a well, not only a warrior for the spirit and a warrior for the, you know, path forward, but um, they have the strength and the grit and the integrity to um, deepen and, and, and this sort of like yearning and desire to deepen their connection to the meaning of existence and, um, what does it mean to be um, a human being today? So um, I, I'm hoping that, that you and everyone who's involved in the work that you've been doing, Piers, um, finds, you know, especially with your recommendation, finds their way to the programs at the Alcyon Center. It's a wonderful next step. And um, I've been working on the periphery uh, for forever. And I'm, I'm, I'm even more on the periphery now as I do this work, earthwork. And um, 
and I feel comfortable at Alcyon Center because Kath and Joan and you are, are there on the edge also. And that's where all creativity is happening right now is on the edge. It's not in the center. It never is in the center, really. The center has a different purpose. Um, but growth happens at the edges. And um, yeah. Well, I know for a fact that they thoroughly enjoy working with you and that uh, if you guys don't know it, uh, Barbara teaches in a cornerstone that's called mapping. And what it does is it, it locates human activity in micro and macrocosmic terms. So it actually brings a dimension of cosmology. You know, my teacher, Robert Sardello, likes to say, in the absence of cosmology, we have psychology meaning that when we don't have shared meaning and a sense of where we're coming from, why we're here and where we're going, all these pathologies emerge, these sense of meaninglessness and alienation, fear. Um, and so for these people that are struggling uh, and, and fighting the good fight and winning it in terms of recovery, for them to be able to place their efforts in these broad, you know, huge cosmic dimensions is I don't even have a word for it. Needless to say, it's empowering and um, it leads to a, a greater sense of uh, purpose and, and responsibility, which we all need. Well, it's really also appears that, that we, you know, none of us were educated with understanding. Oh dear. It's okay. I'm here. Okay. None of us were educated understanding about our relationship to the earth. And um, it's not complicated, but it's hard. It's hard work. And, you know, we were also not educated to learn that life is hard. Life is painful. And that, that that's okay. That, you know, it's part of the path. That's why we're here. And, and um, yeah, so, you know, all the little steps that can be taken um, out of freedom to um, embrace a wider and wider um, circumference around ourselves. I think um, that's what I felt as I worked with the wonderful men and women in the last group was, there's this readiness, you know, it's like, okay, <laughs> we've pulled ourselves to this place where we have this view now out and we have these new strengths and capacities. And, you know, the best thing to do at that moment is to stay busy developing them further. Yeah. And, uh, and it's not complicated and it's beautiful. And there are, um, uh, there's a lifetime of possibilities and, and amazing people, you know, like Ari, like Yeshaya Ben Aharon, like Dennis Klocek, like, you know, the list is endless. And even some, um, have you followed Zach Bush at all? Here's never heard of him. Yeah. Well, he's, 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 well, as far as I know, he's not a student of anthroposophy, but he's a medical doctor who's bringing a new view and understanding of the virome, 
uh, alive. And it's just incredible. And um, I think that's accessible. He's, you know, he's coming out of the field of science, but he's merging it with this, you know, loving kindness, uh, um, big understanding of the role that uh, viruses play. So there are a lot of inspiring people. I feel like, you know, because of whatever's happening in 2020 with, as the astrologers will tell us, they've been looking for decades ahead at 2020, wondering what the heck was going to happen. Yeah. And now we're here. And and as much as life is crumbling up all over and and ready for us to, um, you know, uh, take into ourselves. Yeah. It's so true and so timely to hear that. Well, Barb, this has been absolutely wonderful. Um, any final thoughts or? <laughs> well, there, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot lately and Catherine said to me, <clears throat> okay, well, that's going to be part of the next mapping course then, um, which is you. that, <laughs> which is, um, you know, my mind thinks in charts sometimes. And so I have this chart forming in my mind about all the stages of freedom uh, because I'm concerned about um, uh, us, us, us humanity not realizing what uh, important, crucial, beautiful thing our freedom is. But it's not just freedom, you know, whatever from it's not freedom to choose what kind of uh, candy I want at the candy store, but it goes all the way up to uh, what Rudolf Steiner describes, which is the, that freedom is the possibility to make every action that we take be motivated by love. And so that journey, you know, to there has all these little baby steps along the way. Yeah. And, and when we, you know, we get overwhelmed when we think it's, you know, so far, but there are little steps that we can take all the way. And that's another example of how I think that people in recovery are just already at step, whatever, you know, seven, because they have chosen. Uh, over and over again, a kind of a hard lesson yeah. in freedom. They, they are Manichaean. Yes. In the sense that they, they uh, I think it was uh, Bernard Liebgood who said, they work out of the awareness of knowing that um, the good cast a shadow and that if we're going to advance, we need to pick up the shadow advance, cast a shadow, pick it up. So it's, it's almost an image of what some mystics would call prayer, which is just a rising and a falling, a rising and a falling. Um, yeah, I, I, I feel that very strongly about at least some of them, that that's why they're here. Um, and they're also, they're meant to walk into the nitty gritty um, more than maybe some other folks or they're, yeah. they're, they're just located there. That's yeah. the fact of it. Um, and the, 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 just to add to, or to say a final thought, 
which is that I often think about how um, a person can be in prison with the book of nature and the book of God and the book of the human being, you know, it can happen in prison as well as um, in the luxury of a um, well-oiled retirement or something. Oh yeah, it can happen as much in a prison as it can probably happen in a Camp Hill community. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's yes. yeah. yeah. All right. Well, many, many thanks and many, many blessings. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.